Well, hey, uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, phones, whatever you're going to use for a Bible, or if you don't have one, you can grab a Bible out of the uh, chair in front of you. Hopefully it will have one. But we're going to be in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8. So I'm going to have some scripture that's going to be up on the screen, but we're also going to have a, a chunk that uh, we're actually going to get into our Bibles and we're going to look at uh, for the majority of the second part of this. And as you're, you're turning there, I just kind of share a thought that I thought was uh, interesting. As I'm standing over there as uh, Pastor Matt was praying, and you can hear the wind uh, blowing outside. Uh, it's sounding a tad violent, so to speak. Uh, the thought went through my mind of Pentecost. Uh, Acts chapter 2 tells us when the Holy Spirit descended upon the church, it says they were in the, the upper room praying, and then what was like a violent wind just came upon them. And, and so I, I share that as I was standing over there because man, I don't know what your thoughts are when you wake up uh, on a Sunday morning and, and come to church and even if you're signing in online. Um, but man, I hope there's a part of you that wakes up and you're just like, man, I can't wait to get to church and in the presence of God and his people. And I want a rushing movement of the Holy Spirit to just pour out on me, on us. Um, hopefully that's your intention when you come here this morning is, man, I just want God to move. I want him to speak. I want him to transform. I want him to do whatever he has to do to glorify himself in the church. So that was just a thought that just kind of was going through my mind as I was over there. And, and I hope that's our prayer uh, over the next um, minutes together. Uh, so the great preacher, Jonathan Edwards, um, during the Reformation hundreds of years ago, says this, the seeking of the kingdom of God is the chief business of the Christian life. Hear what he says again. The seeking of the kingdom of God is the chief business of the Christian life. He is laying it out very clearly that as Christians, as followers of Christ, our number one responsibility, our number one goal the chief business of our life must be seeking the kingdom of God. So why is that important? Because if the chief business of our life is to seek the kingdom of God, I think it's safe to say that the chief temptation of sin is to get us to reject the kingdom of God in order to establish a kingdom of our own. Right? If God designed me, if he designed us with the chief responsibility to seek his kingdom, then that means sin, the temptation of sin, is ultimately to reject his kingdom in order to establish a kingdom of my own. This is actually found all the way back in the beginning. When we look at Genesis, Genesis chapter 3 where we see the fall, the temptation and the fall of mankind. And, and there's this moment where many times, you know, we can read those words and, and we think that the ultimate temptation was to gain the knowledge of good and evil. Because that's what it says, right? That's the temptation. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the temptation. But if you actually look at the words that the serpent says, I think the number one temptation that was placed before Eve and Adam was not to gain the knowledge of good and evil, but it was actually to become like God. 
Right? That's what the, the serpent said. He says, he knows, God knows that if you eat of this, you will become like him. See, from the very beginning, God was the king of the universe. God's kingdom has always existed. In the moment that creation happened, God's kingdom was there. The garden was the kingdom of God. He was the ultimate authority. And the temptation was to create a kingdom of their own. The temptation was to remove God from his place in order that they could become like God. Now, Why is that important as we kind of look at this and we continue on with our long story short and we look at the next part of this journey? Pastor Matt walked us through Judges last week. And and we've seen from Judges, right, how Israel enter into this time where they enter into the land and they go through this this, this constant cycle where... God, they prospered under God's leading, and then they would fall into temptation, they would fall into sin, they would fall into idolatry, they would reject God, and because of that, God would hand them over to the people that surrounded them, the nations that surrounded them, and they would be enslaved, and they would be defeated, and after they were defeated, they would cry out to God, and they would say, save us, and God would bring forth a judge, and that judge uh, would then do two things. Pastor Matt said that judge, uh, by being led by God, that judge would accomplish two things of revival. First was a revival of spiritual nature, of bringing the people back to God, bringing the people back to obedience to God, and bringing them back in their hearts to God. But then there was also a revival of freeing them from their captives freeing them and putting them back in control of the land. And, And this was the revival. But then the the cycle would just continue. If you actually look at Judges, the end of Judges, the last statement that is in the book of Judges is very interesting. In Judges chapter 21 verse 25, the very last line of the book, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And I processed this for a while as I was thinking about this. And I was like, well, that's a very interesting statement that that the writer of of Judges is saying. In fact, the writer of Judges is actually most likely Samuel. Samuel is the one that wrote Judges, and then the next book of the Bible is 1 Samuel. So there's this continuation where Samuel is documenting this history of uh, Israel. And I just thought it was interesting. Why did he end that uh, with this? this? But Israel... In those days, you know, Israel had no king, or there's no king in Israel, but everyone did was right in their own eyes. And then it hit me. I was like, man, I wonder if Samuel included this, that God led Samuel to include this, because he wasn't necessarily making a statement, because it's actually a false statement. I'm not trying to say the Bible's false, but it's actually a false statement the way I think we normally read it. We're reading it as if he's making a statement of what was happening. I think what he's doing is he, he, instead he's, he's presenting an, an unfortunate truth. Because here's the thing. The Bible says in those days there was no king in Israel. The issue with that is, but Israel did have a king. The king was God. They did have a king. They didn't have an earthly king, but they had a king. And I think that's what Samuel is kind of putting out there. He's saying, listen, there was no earthly king in Israel, but Israel did have a king. But the problem was, the last line, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. 
Samuel is showing us, the Bible is showing us that Israel didn't have an earthly king, but they were rejecting their king who was God by doing what was right in their own eyes. What was happening was they were rejecting God's kingdom in order to try to form a kingdom of their own. And we're going to look at that this morning a little bit. We're going to process through that and what it means for us. So let's set the scene a little bit. Let's do some... uh, Bible history, so to speak. Let's walk through the kingdom so we're all on the same page and we understand what's happening here. So Samuel. Samuel is actually the final judge of Israel. Samuel was called from the very beginning of his birth. Samuel was called at a young age to be a judge of Israel. In fact, he wasn't just the final judge. Samuel was also a prophet. And he led the people his entire life. And he led the people faithfully. And Israel prospered under Samuel and the leadership that he provided. But all of a sudden we get to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And again, we're not going to jump in there yet, but that's where we're going to be here in a little bit. We get to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And Samuel has been leading the country, or leading the nation, and he's leading the people. And God is is blessing this. And and the Bible tells us that the elders come to Samuel. And we're going to look at this again in more detail here in a minute. But they come to Samuel and they say, listen... We want you to anoint a king. We want you to give us a king. So, God honors that request. God allows Samuel to appoint a king. And scripture tells us that the first king of Israel was King Saul. Saul was actually a a very interesting man. He he was a a very strong man, a very very tall man. He stood out in the crowd. He looked very powerful and very kingly. The Bible tells us that when God was trying to draw him or or Samuel was drawing him to be king, that Saul was actually very, uh, seemed like very humble. He he hid from it. He didn't want to be king, but he becomes the first king. God uses him to... uh, save Israel from the Philistines that are, that are attacking them. He, he, has, he begins his kingdom, but the problem with Saul is Saul actually sins a couple of times. If you read his story, Saul sins a couple of times by directly disobeying God. There's two examples in scripture where he is told very clearly, this is what you're supposed to do. And in both times, he completely disobeys God. And Samuel ends up coming to Saul and telling him, because of your disobedience, God is stripping the kingdom from you. But Saul still remained king. While Saul was king of Israel, God used Samuel then to go and find David. And while David was yet a shepherd boy out in the fields, God uses Samuel to anoint David as the rightful king. So imagine that. You have a king that is currently in power, and then you have a king who is anointed as the true king chosen by God. And if you read through the story, you will hear about how David, uh, Saul spends uh, the last years of his life attempting to kill David because Saul knows that David is the next in line. Uh, Saul wants to keep his kingdom, so he, at- he attempts to destroy David, and David remains faithful to God until God puts him into power. Those of us that have studied scripture, then you know the next things that happen with David. David is called a man after God's own heart. He is actually the man chosen by God, but David is not perfect. David then falls into his own sin where he sees Bathsheba, 
taking a bath on the rooftop and he is moved to bring her into the palace where he sleeps with her and gets her pregnant and she has her own husband. Her own husband, in fact, is actually part of David's army and her husband is actually out fighting for David while David is doing this back in Jerusalem. When David finds out that she is pregnant, because again, David doesn't want to lose his kingdom, because David doesn't want to lose his authority, This is what David does. David says, oh, uh, I can't be seen as the person that got you pregnant. He brings her husband back into Jerusalem, takes him from the fighting, brings him back to Jerusalem, and then basically says, hey, why don't you go home and enjoy some time with your wife? Thinking they will be together, and then David could say, well, great, you are having a new child because of this. Bathsheba's husband was so devoted to God, so devoted to David, and so devoted to his men. When David said, go, enjoy your wife, enjoy your home, his response was, never will I do that while my, my, my men are in the field. I will sleep here outside. This infuriates David because he's caught. He needs to cover his tracks. He needs to protect his kingdom. So what David does then is writes a letter to the commander of the army. And he gives it to Bathsheba's husband. And he says, hey, when you go back to the army, take this letter with you. Give it to the commander of the army. Imagine this. This man that is devoted to God, to David, to his men, actually carries his own murder note. And he delivers it. And it says, hey, when the fighting starts and you are attacking the line, I want you to draw the men away from him so that he will die. David then takes Bathsheba as his wife. And David, uh, this child that they were supposed to have together, when the child is born, God judges uh, David for his sin and the child dies. Uh, And then David then, again, taking Bathsheba as his wife, they end up having a second child. And this child is Solomon, who then becomes the third king. What's interesting about Solomon is when Solomon comes into power, he's not the firstborn. In the way things work, the firstborn is supposed to become the next king. In fact, what's interesting is when David's life is coming to an end, his firstborn son actually thinks, I'm about to become king. He starts to celebrate. He starts to prepare for his uh, uh, appointing as the new king. He starts to throw parties with his friends and the people that are behind him. But David says, no, you won't. And he brings Solomon to himself in his bedroom and anoints Solomon as king. What I think is interesting, and I'll just say this real quick, if anybody enjoys reality TV, the drama of reality TV, you need to read the Old Testament. This is the original reality TV. Because imagine the drama that's taking place here. Here's the oldest son thinking, I am the king. And then secretively, Solomon becomes king. And what's funny is you read the Bible, the oldest son, uh, the oldest brother, he finds out because somebody comes to him and saying, hey, um, there's a party going on over here uh, because your dad just anointed Solomon as king. And, And so division comes to the kingdom. Under Saul, under David, under uh, Solomon, there was a united kingdom of Israel for 117 years. But after Solomon, the kingdom became divided. After Solomon, they split into two separate kingdoms because of the division that was happening. The first was the northern kingdom of Israel. 
It's just so as you read scripture, you understand what's going on if you've never really tracked through this. First becomes the northern kingdom of Israel. This becomes ten of the tribes. They form their own kingdom. During the time of their existence, the northern kingdom had 19 different kings. And every single one of them was wicked. Every single one of them did not follow God. And what ends up happening is after 327 years, the Bible tells us that God says enough is enough. After 327 years of the northern kingdom, God says that is it. And he allows the Assyrian Empire to enter into the kingdom of Israel. And they defeat Israel and destroy it and take the people into captivity. God says I'm done. No more. The second kingdom was then the kingdom of Judah. They then existed in relation to the northern kingdom, and they had 18 different kings. The Bible tells us that 11 of them were wicked. 11 of their kings were wicked, but 7 of them were good. 7 of them followed God. 7 of them led the people the way God called them to lead. 7 of them were more interested in the kingdom of God than in their own kingdom. And because of those 7, God remained patient, and they existed for 461 years. But after 461 years of them seeking their own kingdom, God said enough is enough, and he allowed the Babylonian Empire to come in and destroy the kingdom. See, here's why I'm processing through that, and is we're going to lay this as that foundation as we talk more into 1 Samuel chapter 8, and we talk about how it applies to us. But again, remember back to the beginning If the chief business of a Christian is to seek the kingdom of God, then sin, chief temptation, is to reject the kingdom of God in order to create our own kingdom. And that is what we see, not just through judges, but that is what we see through the entirety of the kingdom of Israel. You see kings that were put into power, and they were more interested in seeking their kingdom. They were more interested in seeking what they wanted than in seeking to be the kingdom of God that they were called to be. So, Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And let's process through this together. So, 1 Samuel chapter 8, starting in verse 1, it says, When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. So, so Samuel thinks, okay, let's continue this line of succession. Let, I'm going to put my sons into power. I'm going to put my sons as judges. The Bible then tells us, though, in verse 3, But his sons did not walk in his ways. It says they turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Again, they were seeking their own kingdom. It says in verse 4, So the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel and they said to him, You are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. So before we go any further, let's just stop and think about this for a moment. Here's an interesting statement that I don't want us to jump over too quickly. Because it sounds like they're coming for good reasons. They're coming and they're saying, listen, Samuel, we we want to continue to follow your ways. And your sons are not. They're being dishonest. And and they're they're more about themselves than us. And they're not leading the way that you lead us. And, and, And we want you to appoint us a king. It sounds very positive. But here's the issue. Again, don't read over scripture too quickly. Notice what they say. 
They say, appoint a king to rule over us, just like all the other nations. Here's the issue, and we're going to go into this a little bit deeper. Israel was never meant to be like all the other nations. From the very moment of their existence, they were called to be unique. They were called to be different. But they are saying, listen, we want to look and be just like everybody else. So appoint us a king. They were seeking their own kingdom. Now, let's jump down. We're going to come back to what we're going to skip. But let's jump down to uh, verse 10. Because then it says Samuel went to them. He, he inquires of God, and we'll look at that here in a minute, but he inquires of God and he comes back and he says, Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. And he says, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take, and then he goes on to the series of, of warnings to them. Now here's the thing. Samuel comes to them. He says, listen, if you want this king, you have to understand what you're asking for. If you have this king appointed over you, if you create this kingdom the way you want it to be created, you think you're going to receive something from that. You think you're going to get something from that. But in actuality, all that's going to happen is everything's going to be taken from you. Samuel goes on and he actually warns them six times. Six times he uses the phrase, he will take he will take, he will take. See, the, the temptation is, if we create this kingdom, we're going to get. It was the same thing even Adam struggled with. If we eat of the fruit, we're going to get the knowledge of good and evil. We're going to receive something. But all that happened was everything was taken from them. In fact, if you go down... To uh, verse 17, after he goes through all these things uh, of warning them of what is going to be taken from them, he, uh, one of the last things he says, he will take a tenth of your flocks, and then he says this, and you yourselves will become his slave. From the very beginning, God was warning the people, listen, if you want to travel down this road to create your own kingdom, you need to realize where you're going to end up, and you're going to end up becoming slaves. See, here's the thing I want us to understand as we process through this this morning. We think about the kingdom of Israel and how it relates to us. Here's the thing. When we give in to the temptation to remove God as our king, all this will end up doing is taking everything from us. And it gives us nothing in return. This is the temptation of sin. This is the temptation that was put before us then. It's put before us now. And let me ask for a moment, if you've heard this statement before, um, doesn't this sound familiar? Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and it's going to cost you more than you want to pay. See, see, this is what God was warning the people with. He's like, listen, if you travel down this road of rejecting me as king, excuse me, rejecting me as king, and if you go down this road and you create this kingdom for yourself, he's telling them this is actual sin, and it's going to take you farther than you want to go. It's going to keep you longer than you want to stay, and it's going to cost you more than you want to pay. 
This is the warning that God is putting out there. Now, look at the response in verse 19. This is the response after all these warnings. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said. In fact, my Bible has an exclamation point. That means they were like very uh, intense with this. They were like, no, they said. We want a king over us. And then they say three things. Then we will be like all the other nations. With a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. These are the three things we're going to look at this morning as we process the kingdom of Israel and the mistake they made and God encouraging us not to make the same mistake. They said three things. We want to be like everybody else. We want a king to lead us. And we want a king to fight for us. Now, let's go back to the portion that we skipped. Go back to verse 7. After they made their request, right? They make their request to Samuel, give us a king. Verse 7 gives us God's response. Samuel was distraught about this. He, was, he couldn't believe that they made this request. And Samuel goes to the Lord and he's praying to God. And he's like, God, why are the people doing this? And God says this to Samuel. And the Lord told him, listen, to all that the people are saying to you, it is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Remember what I said before, Israel already had a king. It always had a king. God was their king. But they came to Samuel to go to God to basically say, we don't want you as our king. We want a king because we want to be like everybody else. We want a king that's going to lead us. And we want a king who's going to fight for us. And God is very clear here. He's saying, listen, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. See, that's the temptation, right? Sin is the temptation. Disobedience is the temptation. It's the temptation to not seek the kingdom of God, to not seek the king, but instead to set up a kingdom of our own so that we can be the king. So that we can be in charge. So that we can design it the way we want it to look. So now let's process through three things. These three things that they say and what that looks like and how it relates to us in the kingdom. First is this. Am I on? Let me make sure I'm on. There we go. First is this. The people came and they were actually rejecting God's purpose. See, when they came and they said, listen, Samuel, we want you to appoint a king so that we can look like everyone else. The problem was the people were looking more at the nations that surrounded them. And while they were looking at the nations that surrounded them, they started to desire to be more like them instead of being the beautiful, unique nation that God created them to be. Israel was never meant to look like everybody else. Israel was meant to be different. Israel was meant to be unique. Israel had a unique calling. They had a unique purpose. They had a unique mission. They had a unique identity that came directly from God himself. But what they were saying was, we don't want this unique identity. We want to be like everyone else. 
Notice what God said to Israel when he formed them, when they were in Exodus. And he says, listen, out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole world is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He's like, this is your identity. This is your purpose. This is, this is why I'm creating you. You are unique and different, and you're supposed to look unique and different. Why is this important to us? Well, let's look at some similarities. Look what Peter says to us as the church. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. You see the similarities? Christian, those here that you've put your faith in Jesus, you are a follower of Jesus, you and I are not meant to look like the world. We are called to be 100% different because your identity is unique because your identity has been given to you by God himself. But see, the temptation, right? The enemy, our enemy, he wants you to deny your unique, beautiful, and amazing identity and seek instead to create a kingdom for yourself. This week I was driving uh, to Cedar Rapids and, and I always enjoy um, when nobody goes with me. I enjoy when nobody else is in the car. Uh, not because I have these great spiritual moments of like prayer with God. That's when I can put the iPod on and play whatever I want as loud as I want and just enjoy it. I enjoy those moments. So as I'm in the car... I'm flipping through my iPod, and, and I came to a song that I haven't heard for a long time. And I was like, oh, I haven't heard this song for, for a long time. Let's play it. Cranked up the, the, the volume and, and just enjoying it down the road. And it was DC Talk, Jesus Freak. If anybody doesn't know it, look it up. It's great. It's great 90s music, right? Great song. But all of a sudden, this thought went through my mind as I was listening to the song once again. All of a sudden, I sat there and I was like, wait a minute. This is the whole point of what I'm preparing to talk about this Sunday. Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus and you are part of the kingdom of God, if that's the kingdom that you are seeking after, you are meant to be a freak in the world's eyes. You are meant to be a weirdo in the world's eyes. You are meant for the world to look at you and say, what is the deal with you and your family? Why is it that in the midst of all the hatred, you're the one talking about love? Why in the midst of all the chaos, you're the one talking about peace? Why is it when everybody else is flipping out about the world and thinking it's falling apart, you are calm, you are collected, you have assurances? What is your deal? You know, one of the things that, and this is a, this is a, um, one of the things for me, this is a challenge for me. But let me give you an example because I've had some of these moments in recent years. There are certain things that I watch on TV that I probably should not watch. But I love it when um, there are moments when I'm hanging out with some people and they'll say, hey, have you seen this? And it's like, a, some, you know, I, don't, I can't even give you an example. But it might be some big popular show. And I'll be like, no, I haven't seen it. And they look at me like, well, what's your deal? Why don't, because we're not meant to consume and feed off the filth of the world. We're meant to be different. We're meant to be unique. Our marriages are meant to be different. Our parenting is meant to be different. 
Do we get it perfect? No, that's not what we're talking about. But we strive for God's kingdom. We strive to be the freaks that he calls us to be. But the temptation, the temptation is just to be like everybody else, right? Because it's easier to be like everybody else. It's easier to give in and look like everyone else and act like everyone else and not make priorities the same way that everybody else is or the same way that uh, everybody else is making priorities instead of the way God wants us to make priorities. This is the first temptation. The first rejection of God is to look at everything that surrounds us and says, I want to be like them. I'm going to give you an example. Um, Our oldest daughter... And so when I share this, I'm not trying to say this is what we're all supposed to do. I'm just talking about something that Amy and I are wrestling with right now. Um, and we haven't made a decision, but our oldest daughter does great in school. And she was actually nominated by a teacher and selected to be part of some leadership development thing, some national leadership development thing. When I got the letter, I was all, I mean, I'm like, hey, yeah, that's my daughter, right? I was all excited about it. I was, uh, you know, and as I'm looking through it, and I'm reading the stuff about it. There was a quote by one of the kids that participated in it. And they said, or one of the moms about their kid that participated. And it made this comment about, ever since my child has been part of this, we have seen how they have grown in their understanding of science and understanding how the world works. And I thought, you know, I want, here's the thing. This isn't an anti-science thing. I'm not trying to say that. But I had this moment of pause. Because I'm like, do I actively want to participate my child in something that potentially is going to teach them that God is not the creator of the universe? Do I actively want to put my child in a place where someone is going to speak into them, trying to say that all of this is just an accident and that God isn't real? Do I actively want my child to be in a place that might draw them away from faith in Jesus just because I want to put them in this national thing to say, look how smart my kid is. And I wrestle, we're wrestling with that. Because in my heart, there's a part of me that says, I want to be like everybody else. I want my child to have every opportunity and I want my child to to get as much experience and knowledge as she possibly can. I want my child to be able to write that on her uh, application someday to go to college. But I have a part of me that says, wait a minute, David, though, you need to stop because you're not called to be like everybody else and you need to protect the heart and mind of your child. So there's a part of me that's wrestling with, do I deny my child the opportunity that potentially could draw them away from Jesus. See, it's not about me creating an identity or creating a kingdom for myself. Let me, th- let me just stop for, as we think about this and, and just hear me on this. If, if there's anything else you don't get from today, hear me on this. The number one thing that the enemy wants to do for, against you, the number one thing the enemy wants to make happen in your life, if you are a Christian, the number one thing is he wants to rob you of your identity in Jesus. He wants to rob you of your identity in Jesus, your purpose, the reason you were created. Your purpose is not to, I'm not talking about your ministry or what you do for Jesus. I'm saying who you are. He wants to rob from you who you are. And I want you to hear me on this because we're going to process this a little bit more here in a couple minutes. It doesn't matter how many sermons you hear about your identity. It doesn't matter how many teachings you do about your identity, how many Bible studies, how often you read the Bible even. These things are great and you should do them. But hear me on this. 
You will never understand your identity in Jesus except through direct revelation from the Holy Spirit of God. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. I'm saying this because I want you to understand something. The enemy wants to steal this from you. So if you are someone that wrestles and struggles and has doubt about your identity and who you are in Jesus, man, dig into studies, dig into teachings, listen to it in sermons, read your Bible, but understand the first thing you have to do always and daily until you get it is you need to cry out to God and say, God, it doesn't matter how many sermons or teachings or studies that I do until the Holy Spirit of God reveals to me my identity, it's never going to make sense. And this is what the enemy wants to steal from you is your identity. He wants to steal from you your purpose. The unique calling that God has on your life. The second thing that they happen is there was a rejection of God's way. So as they enter into rejecting their purpose, the natural thing is that they start rejecting God's way, God's leadership. That's the the natural thing, right? If I start rejecting God's purpose for my life, then the natural thing that's going to happen is I'm going to start drifting away from God's leadership over my life. Right? If I reject his purpose, if I reject his identity that he's given to me, if I don't understand my calling and my identity in him, the natural thing is I'm going to start making my own way versus following his way. Remember, Judges ended with this statement. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Why is this important? Because I want us to think about this for a moment. There is a... (laughs) There is a lot of opinions in our world today. Actually, let me take that back. There's always been a lot of opinions. Everybody always has opinions. The difference is we live in a world where I have to hear and listen and read everybody's opinions. Never in all of the history of mankind can you have a thousand opinions enter into your life in just one day. Anybody that's on social media knows that. Constantly when we're bombarded with, I think, I feel, I see it this way. This is the way you should believe. This is the way you should think. This is the what you should do. It's constantly being pumped into us. Can I just encourage us with something just for a moment? There is nothing wrong with seeking good teaching and wisdom. And there's nothing wrong from listening to other people. But at the end of the day... You hear this a lot, right? I, you know, I love quotes. I love looking up quotes of old pastors and old servants of, and Christians. I love learning from them. and I love listening to what they say. But here's the deal. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks or says. As a Christian, the only thing that matters is what God says. Right? If we're forming our lives with this idea of, oh, well, so-and-so said this, and and -and so-and-so is thinking this, and and this politician is creating this. If it goes against what God says, it's not God's way. And the only thing that matters in the kingdom of God is God's way. But the people came and they said, listen, we don't just want a king so that we're like everybody else. Listen, they said this, we want a king that's going to lead us. Christian, the person that should be leading you is Jesus. The person that should be leading you is the Holy Spirit of God that indwells in you because you're a child of God. That's your identity. This is the one that is leading us, not the opinions of anybody else, just the opinion of God. 
But we fall into the temptation of seeking out wisdom in all the places that we shouldn't be seeking out wisdom. We're, we're quoting people that we shouldn't be quoting. Listen to me. I don't care. When I say this, I'm not trying to dog her or anything like that. But she's just the example that pulled into my head. She might be a great person. I could care less what Oprah says. I could care less what Dr. Phil says. When it comes right down to it. Do they have great things? I'm not saying they don't. But everything gets weighed by what God says. Because he's the one that is leading the kingdom. You know, Lisa brought it up, and I didn't have this in my notes, but when she brought it up during the first service, I was like, I just latched onto it. She, she read Psalms 23. This is one of the most famous psalms that most of us know. We've probably heard it a thousand times, but that entire psalm is talking about God's way. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He leadeth me. He leadeth me. Christian, we're called to be unique and different, and we're called to be led by God in everything. Every part of life, every aspect of our existence, we are called to God's way. And again, I love the song. We got done singing Good, Good Father. And, and we all just got done singing. Listen to this. Hear me on this, and just let this get down deep into you. We just got done singing. You are perfect in all of your ways. If he is perfect in all of his ways, why would we ever doubt to follow? Why would we ever doubt to say, you know what, God, I hear how you say to do it, but I think this option is a little bit better. Or, Lord, I think I would, I'd rather do it this way. If his ways are perfect, then we should never doubt to follow his ways. Notice what scripture says in Hebrews. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. This is talking about Israel. During the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did, this is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. When I talk about rest, I'm not talking about your life's going to be simple and perfect and everything's going to be roses and unicorns and rainbows and everything. that You're not going to have any problems. That's what God's talking about. But I want to say this just for a moment before we move on to the third one. If you ever find yourself in moments in life, or if you're finding yourself right there right now, but that you look at your faith and you look at your, your relationship with God and, and you look at your condition of your life and, and it's not defined by rest, and what I mean by rest is that deep assurances of who you are, that deep assurances that God's in control, that deep assurances that this world is not your home and you don't have to get worked up about what happens in this life like the rest of the world. If you don't have that rest, that confidence, that assurances, then I want to encourage you with something. I want you to stop for a moment and ask yourself, are you struggling with your identity in Jesus? Is it possible that the enemy is trying to mar and destroy and steal who you are in Jesus? Is it possible that you are in a place where you're not doing it God's way? Because God's way leads to life and blessing and rest. And I'm not saying that again to like, how dare you or, or anything like that. I'm saying that because God has something so amazing and beautiful and awesome for us. And because we fall into the temptation to try to live and create our own kingdoms, we miss out on what God has for us. 
I'm trying to encourage us to not miss out on what God has for us. Here's the third and last one. They, reject, they rejected uh, God's presence. Again, remember, we want, to, we want to be like everybody else. We want a king to lead us. And they said, we want a king to fight for us. See, when we drift away from God's purpose and our identity in God, when we drift away from God's way, the natural thing that then is going to happen, when we drift away from God leading us, we're going to drift away and move away from God's presence. You can't enjoy the presence of God if we are tempted to move away from doing it his way. Notice what God says to Israel. This is in Deuteronomy, but he says, When you go out to fight your enemies and you face horses and chariots and an army greater than you, do not be afraid. The Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt is with you. When you prepare for battle, the priest must come forward to speak to the troops. He will say to them, listen to me, all you men of Israel, do not be afraid as you go out to fight your enemies today. Do not lose heart or panic or tremble before them, for the Lord your God is going with you. He will fight for you against your enemies, and he will give you victory. Here's the thing. When you hear that scripture, don't latch on to just the promise of victory. That's what we end up doing, right? It's like, I am victorious, which is true. But that's not the greatest promise of this passage and what God is saying. The greatest promise of this passage is God is with you. That's the promise. That's the greatest promise. Don't be afraid. Don't panic. Don't tremble. For God is going with you. Right? We, we, we focus so much on needing victory and to win the battles. But the most important thing is not whether or not you win the battle. The most important thing is, are you in the presence of God? Are you united to your king? Are you with him? So now as we bring this all together and we kind of bring it to a close as we kind of process through this, I want to just be honest with you for a moment that as I was going through this this week, I had a moment where I was thinking about, uh, the, I was thinking about judges and then I was thinking about the kingdom of God I was think, or the kingdom of Israel and I was thinking about how they messed it up and, and how they, they got sold into, you know, they, they got defeated and Israel, the northern kingdom's gone, the southern kingdom's gone, judges was just a mess. I mean, that's all judges is, is a mess of we tried, we failed, we tried, we failed, we tried, we failed. And I had a moment where I was sitting there and I was thinking about Israel's consistent cycle of failure and I had this moment where I said, God, if Israel can't get it right, what hope is there for us? Right? I had this moment where I was like, listen, these are the people that saw the Red Sea split. These are the people that had manna fall from heaven. These are the people that saw Moses hit a rock with a stick and water shot out. Right? These are the people that marched around Jericho and yelled and walls fell down. Like, these are people that saw some amazing things that God has done. And I sat there going, God, if all these people saw all of these amazing things that you have done and they can't get it right, And they reject you. What hope is there for us? And then this is what God impressed upon me. What hope is there in us? And God says this. He said, listen. I use their rejection of me to create your redemption to me. 
He's like, I used their rejection. They rejected me as their King David, but I used that to create your redemption. He goes on and he says, listen, I used the king that Israel wanted to bring to you the King David that you needed. What do I mean by that? See, we look at the kingdom of Israel. Some of us could read the king. See, I think we focus a lot on Solomon. I mean, he did a lot of good stuff. Don't get me wrong. He wrote some of the Bible. King David. King David was amazing, right? We look at King David and we think to ourselves, obviously God wanted there to be a king. It was never God's intention for there to be a king of Israel. That was never God's intention. The only reason there became a king of Israel is because the people rejected God as their king. And God said, fine, I'm going to give you what you want. If you want a king, I'm going to give you a king. But God used Israel's rejection of him as king to bring forth Jesus Christ as the king that you and I needed. Because David, or, uh, Jesus comes from the line of King David. God says, listen, David, I'm going to use that wickedness. I'm going to use that rejection. I'm going to use that failure. And I'm going to use it for the ultimate victory. I'm going to use that rejection to bring forth your redemption. David, their rejection of me is actually what I'm going to use to save you. So here's the thing. What hope is there of us? Well, here's the thing. Look back at the warning to Israel. The warning to Israel, God said, listen, if you put this king into power, if you want a king, all that king is going to do is take, 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 and take. When we get sucked into the temptation to create our own kingdom and try to live out our own kingdom, all that's going to do is take, 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 and take. But God really impressed upon me. He's like, listen, David, those kings took... And your kingdom is going to fail because all it's going to do is take from you. But listen, David, I am not the king that takes. I am the king that gives. For God so loved the world that he gave himself to be our king. Remember that rushing wind? That's, that's, that's the Holy Spirit. We're just going to go with that. God gave himself. He gave everything. He loved us so much that he is not the king that takes. He is the king that gives. What hope do we have? We have something Israel never had. We have Jesus Christ. And you have the Holy Spirit of God that indwells you. Israel never had that. So here's the thing as we close, uh, some of us might be saying, well, where do, where do we start to, to defend ourselves against uh, our own kingdom? How do, we, how do we not reject our purpose and our calling? How do, how do we um, not fall into this temptation of rejecting God's kingdom and living for the king? It begins simply here. This is my encouragement as we close. It begins here. Hold tight to your calling. And what I mean by calling, I'm not talking about your profession. I'm not talking about what you do for I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about your calling, meaning the purpose in which God created you, your identity in Christ. Start with your identity. Hold on to your identity. With everything that you have, don't let go of your identity. Don't let the enemy mar your identity. Don't let the enemy try to steal your identity. If you don't understand your identity, then start seeking it and crying out to God saying, I am listening. Show me my identity in you. In fact, Samuel is really interesting. 
When God first called Samuel, Samuel was sleeping and God calls his name. And Samuel thought it was Eli, the, his mentor. And Samuel runs to Eli and he says, what do you want? Eli's like, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. Second time, God calls out to Samuel and Samuel runs to Eli. And three times this happens. And finally, Eli figures it out. And Eli says, listen, Samuel, next time you hear God speak, next time you hear your name, I want you to say this. Say, God, Lord, your servant is listening. Christian, that's where we always have to start on a daily basis, on a, on a regular basis, every day, throughout the day. Position yourself in a place where you're like, Lord, your servant is listening. I'm ready to hear my identity. I need to know my identity. I need you to confirm in me my identity. Holy Spirit of God, you say and you promise that you are the one that will testify to my spirit who I am. So just for a moment as we close, listen, Christian, follower of Jesus, hear some of the, the, the things that Scripture tells us is your identity. Listen, you are not a sinner. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are not a sinner, but you are a saint. You are not rejected by God, but you are actually the beloved of God. You are not abandoned, you're redeemed. You're not a vessel of darkness, you're a bearer of holy light. You are not a child of rebellion, but you are the righteousness of God. You are a child of the King, meaning you are uh, you are born again, created anew with royal blood. If you are a child of the king, then you are princes and princesses of the kingdom of God. That is who you are. And the enemy wants to take that from you. He wants to rob that from you. Paul says this, he calls you and he says, listen, live a life worthy of your calling. Live a life worthy of your identity in Jesus. Because here's the last thought I want to give you. When we fully embrace our purpose and our identity that's from King Jesus, then we will naturally live out that purpose in King Jesus. And you will live a life of rest completely united with King Jesus. Where do we start? Don't let the enemy steal your identity. Stand in it. Live in it. Rejoice in it. Make that everything as you seek his kingdom. Let's pray. King Jesus, all glory to you today. Every day, all glory to you. But this morning I ask in your name, for your glory's sake, pour out your Holy Spirit upon your church. Lord, I pray for each and every one of us. Even those that we understand our identity, we, we are uh, affirmed in it, we have assurances with the Lord, we still need to be reminded. So I pray your Spirit pour out in us. Lord, those that struggle with our identity, pour out your Spirit. Confirm in us, Lord. Let us know who we are. Let us celebrate who we are, not because of ourselves, but all because of you. Let us not fall into the temptation of creating our own kingdom or living our own kingdom, but let us embrace the calling to be unique, to be separate, to be different, because we're not of the kingdoms of this world. We are of the eternal kingdom of God. Lord, let us get excited about that. Let us embrace that. Let us live out our purpose. Let us uh, follow your way. Let us enjoy your presence as you fight for us and defend us. And surround us with your amazing and beautiful presence. 
Confirm our identity today for your glory, for your kingdom, for your mission, for your purposes of our life. We give you praise in all of it, Lord. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Go in peace.